So welcome to the Royal Institution. This is called Dave Made Us, and it was the idea was that we felt that there was a lot of kind of a lot of things in the media are very negative voices, and I was reading this fantastic book by Olivia Lang. I don't know, have any of you read any of the work of Olivia Lang? She, she's what I would call the anti-Deepak Chopra, in so much as if I ever see a book that I think, that looks interesting, and then it has a quote from Deepak Chopra saying, this book is great, I go, I no longer require this book. <laughs> uh, whereas Olivia Lang, if I ever see her involved in anything, I immediately go, right, whether it's just a quote for a book, whether it's an introduction she's written for a book, whether it's a book of her own, I will always buy these books. And, uh, and she was kind of one of the inspirations. What we're going to be talking about tonight are people who have been inspirational, are people who have changed the perspectives of our guests, have changed what may well have even been what they felt were their possibilities, may well be people who, as so often, often sometimes with, with writers, with poets, with scientists, with, with thinkers, with activists, there are certain people who help give us permission to be who we would like to be. And Olivia Lang, in the introduction to Funny Weather, which is a, a fantastic uh, collection of essays predominantly about artists, uh, she writes a little bit about this, this I, I love. She says, like many people, I've been puzzling over paranoid reading and reparative reading, or you're so paranoid you probably think this essay is about you, by Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick. Right now, it's just check how many of you have also been puzzling over this. <laughs> so that's, I love that, right? I love the fact that she has that. And, and this essay is such a great essay because it talks about the fact that one of the problems that we have is we can spend too much of our life trying to identify the poison. So if you go on social media, very often you will see all the things that are trending are things which are negative voices, you know, those kind of, I don't know, you know, Jordan Petersons and those kind of people. It's people being angry about them, so it's them constantly looking at the poison and not necessarily finding the nourishment. So this is how... Uh, Olivia describes reparative reading. A useful analogy for reparative reading is to be fundamentally more invested in finding nourishment than identifying poison. And that is what I hope we do this evening. I'm joined by Helen Chersky. Helen, can I ask you, so who for you is someone who has helped change your perspective of the world and the possibilities of the world? So, I mean, there are lots of people, because one of the brilliant things of being human is that there's lots of influences, but the one I would pick now is uh, Friedrich Nansen, who was a polar explorer. And the thing that's interesting about Nansen, I think, is that he was completely driven to explore, and he you know, he came up with this bonkers expedition that you could freeze a, a ship into the ice and just get to the North Pole by just letting the ice carry you there. And he was bonkers enough to carry that out. And, but, and then, but then later in his life, it, as soon as that was done, he got back to land and he kind of went, you know what, that's not the most important thing in life. And then later in life, he became uh, an advocate for uh, refugees and displaced people. And there was actually a thing called the Nansen visa that helped people who didn't have a country as a result of the world wars to then they could take their Nansen visa and, and go to a new country. And so I like that. There's two things about that. There's the expansiveness of his vision. He had this big idea and he t and everyone thought he was bonkers and he wasn't afraid to make it happen. But actually he wasn't afraid then to just change direction and go, you know what? There are more important things. And to use the fame from the first thing to really, and the problem is he had authority, right? Because once, you've, once you're looking at a man who has dealt with all that real polar, like de dealing with what a human is, no one is going to tell him he doesn't know what life is really about. 
and he used that to really good effect. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of Nansen. Can I ask, have you ever been to the Explorers Club in New York? I have not. I met someone from the Explorers Club once who told me I should go, but I didn't go. Oh, it's fantastic. Right, if you ever get there, if you can go there, every single painting, I was given a tour, it's actually exactly one year ago today, and all of them are going, this, of course, was an incredible expedition. Uh, it ended up with most of those people being cannibalised. Uh, this, of course, everyone, and, and, and then there's this amazing guy whose name I forget, who was really big, hulking guy, who at one point had had to eat his own leg, uh, and he was married to the Vogue fashion editor who was this very very beautiful very very slight woman and he was enormous covered in kind of the furs of dead animals and then the guy said also after he'd lost his leg he went on another expedition and the snow covered him and he didn't know how to get out and then he remembered that dog excrement on an expedition if you freeze it it becomes as hard as a pickaxe so he waited until he could do a big poo then waited till it was really really cold and then managed to get out of it so it's fantastic you'd love it um the <laughs> But I love I so the Explorers Club. Look it up. There are so many great and, things there. And if there. you've ever like take the take away from this survival skills, <laughs> we at Cosmic Shambles give you survival skills. This is one of the reasons. Before any of you go on an Arctic expedition, have a lot of fibre, just <laughs> in case. Nothing that's going to lead to things being too loose. Uh, there's no way I can segue, fortunately, to our first guest from that, which I think is a good thing. Well, I don't know. Oh, well, maybe if have you, you have got, got a segue that. Uh, <laughs> I've been to Antarctica, and we. Um, Put all our stuff on Nansen sleds. Yes, they're still called Nansen sleds. Nansen. Yes. Is that good enough? No, I was I was thinking more of the excremental element. <laughs> this is uh, I'm here to lower the values yeah, of this. Yeah, well podcast. the problem is we were looking for meteorites which are dark brown on the blue ice and previous people in expeditions sometimes left gifts for future <laughs> expeditions to find. As meteorites. Yeah, but I mean, would that be? There is a possibility. <laughs> if any of I know a lot of people in this room are big fans of Eric von Daniken, that maybe that was extraterrestrial excrement, perhaps. That well, you see, the there? thing is, then they would be collected and, right. and bagged and sent to the curation facility in Houston, where they would be gradually uh, defrosted and melted, so that they could be then examined. And usually, it was at that stage when it was found that. They actually weren't rot. You know, what's <laughs> you know what's interesting, though, is that whenever biologists study animals, rare animals that are hard to find, what they do is look for the scat, right? They look for the poo, and yet for aliens, no one ever does that. I feel like <laughs> this is a massive hole. Because we don't know what it looks like. Oh, right. you mean it could be these chairs? Well, it <laughs> uh, <laughs> unlikely, because I don't know what would actually be big enough to produce something like that. What sort of shaped orifice it would come from? <laughs> We're on to the wombats already. Brilliant. Yeah, so the... Um, I think yes, the and that's the thing, see, if you go... To, sorry, Robert. No, no, no. If you go to Australia and collect meteorites, kangaroo poo looks very, very like uh, a, a meteorite as well. But you can tell, uh, because if it's got a soft centre, it's kangaroo poo. If it hasn't got a soft centre, it's a meteorite. <laughs> Again, more, more skills, life skills we're teaching you. This is a lovely idea because it, what you've just said there has both made people want to open a box of chocolates <laughs> and at the same time close it immediately again. Um, so we're joined by Monica Grady, who, uh, amongst other things, as well as being a space scientist, is responsible for being one half of the biggest argument we ever had on the Infinite Monkey Cage. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, yes, I do. It was a fascinating... Joe Brand eventually broke it up. And, uh, and, and it, was, it was very interesting because it was about where we might 
might find where the most likely places are for us to find life in our solar system. And it was a very, I loved that moment. And I hope you, you know, you didn't leave kind of with any sense of umbrage because what I enjoyed about it was seeing two scientists, seeing all of that passion. Well, she was wrong. <laughs> Who was on the other side of this, sorry? It's Carolyn Porco. Oh, right. Now, uh, Helen? Right, who so our other guests, <laughs> um, who may or may not have scatological contributions to make, uh, is Amy Reynolds, who is a um, motoring journalist, worked for MotoGP for many years, uh, has done lots of stuff for, done stuff for Shambles, and has a very sparkly jacket, which is excellent. I thought it would add into the, the sparkly theme of this evening. So the sparkle is on this side of the stage. <laughs> Yeah, the holes are this side. Yeah, the, where, yeah. where the shabby bit. I've got three socks on just to like add into that as well. So we're right there. Um, and have you uh, ever gone to the polar regions or considered uh, alien poo? I'm not sure that they would hold a race uh, that far north. Uh, but I have definitely been around the globe a little bit with, with MotoGP, um, MXGP and, and whatnot, many t other two-wheeled forms of sport. Um, but no, um, not that far north. And just on the, because you, we just, there's just been a shambles documentary on speed, and I was wondering, you, you know, you've spent years talking about people going very fast. What's the fastest you've ever gone? I actually also um, took part in the Ducati two-seater. So what we're saying about 270 per hour, um, which is when you're not in control of your own speed, absolutely terrifying. <laughs> but also very addictive at the same time. I remember getting off and having that amazing adrenaline rush and being so exhilarated. But then the come down from it was ridiculous because I suddenly, the penny dropped and I thought, I'm never going to experience anything like that ever again. And so it took me a real, you know, I'd say 24 hours to just kind of process what I'd experienced, appreciate how amazing these guys that I get to talk about week in, week out and have done for years were, but also feel a little bit jealous that I was never going to perhaps experience anything like that again. But you have the positive thought in your head to carry with you. That's the, in, in the positive, because I guess, a, you know, you could look at that and say, what's the net gain? But, you know, the, you still carry it, you still carry the experience. So is that net positive? So there wasn't so it wasn't convincing. Well, I did carry around uh, a couple of wounds. So right at the end, so you basically come in off this hot lap. Um, I rode around the Barcelona, so it's Catalonia circuit. So lots of changes of direction, and you've just had this most amazing experience. And I was with Randy Mamula. He's a very famous ex-rider. Comes in and he knows me well, and so he came and did the biggest stoppy ever. And obviously because it's a two-seater, there's a seat divider, and so we go up and I land. Ooh, on the seat divider. Good noise, audience. Well done. You don't have to be a male to really appreciate that, do you? <laughs> no. So whilst it was net positive, some downsides. There were a few, yeah. Spare us the details. Okay. <laughs> it's all right, because I, I, I had a child afterwards, so that was all fine. <laughs> But I, all, all three of you, I imagine, probably, because the most risky thing that I've ever done was I went uh, book shopping in Matlock. <laughs> and uh, I decided to walk to Cromford, and it turned out it wasn't a footpath, and it was oh. very brambly. And uh, I nearly fell. <laughs> anyway, did you, did so... Did you rip your cardigan? Is that oh, yeah. there was a cardigan rip. I had uh, bramble uh, scars all over my hands, but oh. I had some real treats as well. And you uh, never considered digging yourself out with your own poop? No, no, no. <laughs> it wasn't points. one of those situations. This is why I only go to the warm climb 
games where that's not required. I wonder, Monica, is, is there any kind of envy there in the fact that, you know, for Amy, her, her love of speed and, and love of, of, you know, kind of motorcycling and all that, which is, means that you can partake in it, whereas you working in, in you know, space science, and sometimes you see these incredible missions, and of course it is so few people that actually get the yeah. chance yeah. to, you know, leave our atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah, so there is a certain amount of envy, you know, there's a certain realisation that, you know, A, I'm 65 and B, I'm not quite as slender as I used to be and, and C, it would take an awful lot of rocket fuel to get me off the ground. But yes, I would. I'd jump at the chance to, uh, to go on a rocket ship. What do you think about, you know, that, the, those missions that William Shatner went on it and, and oh, since then the he old, found the whole thing uh, rather disappointing. That was uh, Jeff um, Bezos. Was that Jeff Bezos? I, it was one of those rich men, yeah. Yes, it was one of those Freudian rich men. Yes. Um, yeah. and, but it seems that the way that was sold was as if, but it seems so brief. It seems that, that you know, when you do talk to astronauts yeah. who have had, you know, when you, you Chris Hadfield being, you know, or Helen Sharman, you know, you, you, that, that, having that period of time, whether it's days or whether it's months, to actually contemplate. But that bit, which is kind of, look out the window now and we're back. back. Yeah, yeah. To me, that, that, that was exciting. You know, Jeff Bezos, uh, he went above the Kalman line. And I don't think, uh, what's his name, Richard Branson, when his, his I don't think... His did go or it only, you know, hovered close to it. But to me, that isn't going into space. I mean, there's a thing on the BBC website at the moment with Rebecca Morell, the BBC uh, science correspondent. She's just been upon the Vomit Comet, which is a thing that does parabolas for, for training. In. And she's talked about what, what that's like. And that must be fantastic. You've got a, a few seconds of, of um, no gravity at the, the, the top of the parabola. But no, I mean, I, I would love to be able to go onto a space station and, you know, they've got a special little window they can sit at and they can, the cupola, the cupola. Well, I find that really hard. So it's, yeah. is it cupola? It's cupola. C-U-P-O-L-A, that thing, window <laughs> like that. And the astronauts can go and sit there and just look at the, you know, the earth turning below them and then look out the other direction and to me that must be fantastic you know I don't want to spend all the time you know trying to catch droplets of water in my mouth you know whatever but sitting and, and, and seeing that that would be just well a lot of them do say that don't they They go when we went up there I was thinking what am I going to do with my downtime and I thought finally I'll read James Joyce's Ulysses <laughs> and then you start looking out the window and you go do you know what I'll look out the window instead and I, and I think that is yeah well strangely enough and, and here I am you know boasting I did Desert Island Discs and the book I said I'd take with me was Ulysses because I failed to read it at least three times but I thought Desert Island I might be able to read it and failing that it could be used for sanitary purposes because it's very thick <laughs> that's a very pragmatic choice i am there. a pragmatic yeah. woman it's not exactly a, a recommendation for a book though when you say i would only read this if it was literally the last book in the world yeah. <laughs> and it was absorbent, and it was absorbent. Uh, yeah i mean that 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 that, that mixture of uh, but let's find out. So, so should we move on? Um, let's find should out. Should we do what we're supposed to be doing? No, 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 no. <laughs> I've spent years never doing that, and it's been all right. Um, so let's find out. Amy, who is the person who has been your, your first? We've got to, one of them we don't know about, by the way. This is another thing as well. You, both of you have secret uh, kind of, whether you want to call them heroes or inspirations. So who is the first person you would like to uh, introduce us to? So knowing the good company that I was going to be in this evening, I have to hold my hands up and say that I was uh, slightly hesitant about bringing my, my first guest uh, onto the floor um, because 
I definitely, when I was younger, was inspired by strong women roles in books, films, um, people that I would learn about in schools. I was never one of those girls that would have like the boy band posters up on her wall. I actually felt a little bit embarrassed about that at the time, thinking like, I don't want a picture of Peter Andre on my wall. I'll carry on with the Spice Girls. But anyway, things obviously moved on. And then it must be when I was in high school and I watched a film called Legally Blonde. And there was a character called Elwoods, and she's a sorority girl that, in an attempt to win back her boyfriend, gets into Harvard Law School and has to come overcome all of these societal expectations and also limitations. Um, but in doing so, she really finds herself. She also realizes her boyfriend's an absolute bonehead, so she kind of ditches that idea, but also wins the the affection, the appreciation of her peers, her lecturers, and also the US legal system. So no small feat, um, but it, it is packaged as a very fluffy film. And I think being, oh, I must have been about 11 or 12 when I watched that. I would definitely say I was a bit more like Candy Floss around the edges. You know, I really enjoyed my, my girly activities, but I wanted to be taken seriously at the same time. And I was trying to marry up all these things, but I definitely knew that there was areas that I'd go into and knew I wasn't being taken very seriously because I think mainly the exterior. And so basically, I go through high school, must watch, watch this film about 50 times, and then it gets to university. So I was like, right, okay, cool. I've only actually applied to one university, and it was to study broadcast journalism at Nottingham, and um, I got my letter, and you basically had to go there and sit in an assessment. So you, you, they, it was basically in the old BBC buildings in Nottingham. And I got my letter back and I didn't get in. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be in so much trouble because I haven't applied anywhere else. Haven't also told my parents that. What, what the hell am I going to do? So I decided the best thing to do was to call the course leader so go and find the letter, call the course leader and say, hi, um, my name's Amy Dargan. Um, so I've actually not been accepted. I need to get on this course. So what do I need to do to get in next year? And she was a little bit like, oh, okay. Can, do you mind if I call you back later on or perhaps tomorrow? And I was like, oh, yeah, that's absolutely fine. Anyway, I got it. I got on the course and... She basically explained to me it's because I'd shown tenacity, really. And it was that, really, that inspiration that I got from that character that continued to take me through my adult life. And I arrived on this course, and I told you about the candy floss exterior earlier. So I went on my first year, and there was a lot of, of the my peers on the course that I'd done, you know, years out and things like that. So I was one of the youngest. At the same time, I was also competing in the Miss England beauty pageant. <laughs> I wasn't doing myself any favours, was I? <laughs> I also joined the cheerleading team. And rightly so. I wasn't taken very seriously by any of my lecturers, but I took myself seriously, and I knew exactly where I wanted to go. Actually, that's not fair. One university lecturer uh, took me seriously. His name was Andrew James. He was my sports journalism lecturer. And a real full circle moment happened this year. He ended up being one of my floor managers on a production I was working on, which was crazy. But it was all of, 
it was Elle Woods and her determination. She had to really prove to everybody that she was worthwhile taking seriously. There was many kind of, I mean, like she was ahead of the Me Too movement. She had to kind of hold off advances from one of her professors. Um, and I just remember every time I, I kind of faced a slight setback or anything like that, I would just pop this film on, like, right, get your head down and carry on. And do you still do that now? Do you still watch it? So I do haven't you know it all so well. That you I don't could need quote to. quite a few things, but I won't put you through that. Um, but my husband actually did remind me. I completely forgotten this. In my office, I still have one of the quotes framed, and I'd completely forgotten. But I rewatched it, knowing I was obviously kind of joining you guys this evening. I thought I'll rewatch the film again, and it is. It is just one of those films where you. It's essentially a very feminist film, packaged in a very non-feminist way, if that makes sense. Mm. Looking on the cover, you would go, God, this is going to be a load of... And then you watch it, and it's actually got some really decent values, values that I actually wouldn't be ashamed to teach my daughter. And I remember I had... So I started off, um, essentially, when I was at university, I decided I'm going to move into sports. I want to be in most sports, so I need to find a job there. What do I do? I'll go and be a grid girl. It's the easiest way in. And then not obviously, when you're 18, you don't think things through well, do you? You don't make the wisest of decisions. So I didn't think, actually, if I do this, I'm going to have to work doubly hard to get people to take me seriously. But it actually worked. It's how I got my first job in television. I was working for an energy drink sponsor um, that were sponsor, the main sponsor of a, a motocross series. And I worked there for a year. And any chance I got to tell the, the TV director or any of the teams, I was like, I'm studying. I'm studying. And I got very lucky that the, the pit lane reporter at the time um, left to go to the US. And they called me up. There was only pro one problem. I broke my leg trying to ride my friend's dirt bike. <laughs> I was like, oh, God, this is going to be difficult. I've literally got to start walking in six weeks. And I hadn't done a half job. I'd done my tip, my fib, dislocated my ankle, a lot of nerve, nerve damage. I was in a cast for like two and a bit months. Fast forward a couple more years, and I get called for most GP. And so I go, like, go in with all the enthusiasm. I'm really excited to be there, smiles on the face. And I remember one of my ex-colleagues turning around to me at the time and saying to him, <laughs> he's like, so um, I'm obviously here for the more technical, serious pieces. And you're here for like the fluffier, fluffier features. And there's this line from the film where she goes, I'll show you how valuable L words can be. That was my terrible American accent. And that's literally what I kind of said in my head. I was like, I'll show you how vulnerable I am of me. So it did. It literally stuck with me throughout. Can I ask you, Helen, because this is, you know, science, it's only recently that we've started to properly have, again, out front more female faces. And as we know, unless you have those things, then you don't, a lot of people don't realise that that can be a direction that they, they're going to go in. And hopefully that is a situation that's getting better. But when you started out, did you... You know, in, the, in that same way as you were talking about, some of that being patronised, some of this is why you're here. And I've certainly heard stories in academia of that kind of, you don't, well, you don't have to, <laughs> for legal reasons, go through them. But, you know, do you feel that has changed now? I do think it's changed. And I didn't, and what you, could, you could definitely argue, so I don't think about the world in terms of role models. 
And so I think the fact that there weren't any didn't really bother me because I was doing my thing and I didn't expect to do anything else. I was just doing the thing I wanted to do and trying to do my best at it. And it didn't bother me. And, and you could argue that that was, that was a filter that I kind of passed through because it didn't matter that there weren't any because I didn't care. But I think, and, but the, the, the evidence shows that um, women respond more strongly than men to having role models perhaps because there are fewer around. Um, and so, and I think it is getting better. And actually what I hear, you know, if I talk to younger people now, they're much more aware that they can do these things. They also are aware there are obstacles. Sometimes when I don't think there are any more, you know, they're like, oh, well, I have to do extra, I have to be extra good because there's these obstacles. And sometimes it's really useful not to know the obstacles are there because then you just do it anyway and no one tells you it's supposed to be hard. So, so I think there's a bit of a mixture of, I have quite conflicted, views about things like uh, women in engineering day because on the one hand like get the role models out there if it helps women get into engineering great and on the other hand there's only so much talking about like sometimes talking about it can be counterproductive because you s expend energy on that when you could just be doing the thing yeah. and and i think there's a really difficult balance in terms of these conversations between making people feel empowered and making them feel like victims and yeah, but I, th I think it is getting better. And I mean, it's certainly obvious, you know, even, uh, you know, 2010, 2011, right? And I presented my first big documentary series to the BBC with Kate Humble. And all the press was like, oh my God, two women presenting a science documentary. That was genuinely a thing. And that was 2011. And you would not hear that now, partly because there aren't many science documentaries, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it would be, if, if you didn't have a, a more diverse mixture of people, that would be the problem. So mm. there's definitely, you know, it's definitely getting better. But, um, but I think these things did, and I think what's interesting about what you say is that a lot of people are very dismissive of those characters mm -hmm. for precisely the reasons that they're important that you've given. Like it's, oh, well, it's a fluffy movie. Oh, well, you know, it's a rom-com or it's a thing. And actually, a I think a lot of feminist ideas are, are sort of, they have to be hidden to get through into the mainstream. They have to be kind of, you know, sort of almost you couldn't make a feminist film that people would watch because it would feel worthy, but you can make yeah. something like that that's actually feminism disguised as something else. Well, I think it's actually really interesting because the film actually starts and it is like a classic scene. So she is in a shop with two of her friends and um, essentially a sales assistant says something along the lines of, there's nothing, nothing more, there's nothing I love more than a dumb blonde with daddy's plastic. <laughs> and essentially what she does is i mean i'm not going to try and quote this but she must be studying something like fashion textiles and um she asks her a really technical question about the dress and this sales assistant is just kind of like oh gosh like oh oh and she's like and you didn't just get it in i saw it in the june vogue a year ago so it is that whole you know it's you expect this character to be the absolute opposite of of what I guess most people see as feminism, but then the minute it starts, it's like this isn't the film you're going to you're you're expecting to see. Just I mean, just finally that the there's this perception that these are terrible stereotypes that yeah. this doesn't really happen. But I will tell you because and it all three of us certainly will have had versions of this. I was in I was filming a BBC big BBC documentary. I was in a hotel lobby in America in Arizona. We were surrounded by cases of camera equipment. We were going out for a day's filming. Uh, rather la rather portly American guy with big hat waddles over, starts telling the cameraman how to do his job, talks to the sound assistant about what he's doing wrong, and then waddles over to me and says, "Oh, so you're the pretty one that does the talking." 
<laughs> and I have never needed self-restraint <laughs> as much as I did at that moment. But the point was that that is absolutely a stereotypical thing that you would write in a film and then someone would cross it out because they would say that would not ever happen. Ooh, it still makes me cross now. We can tell. I'll tell you how I can tell you. It's because you started off thinking, I better be to get it politically right, the way of talking about someone who's quite big. Uh, portly, waddles across, and then the, the way that waddles came in, anything in terms of your good intentions with portly was thrown aside with the double waddle that came in there. Uh, Fair enough. Monica, do you have... Uh, I'm interested, I just want to... Uh, in, in terms of movies, when, when you were growing up, were there any movies where you thought, that is the person that I want to be? Um, well, my second guest might sort of come under that. OK, well, we'll leave it till then, then. Yeah. Excellent. But I'm with Helen on what she was saying about, about role models, because I, I never really had one in academia, you know, and obstacles, I didn't notice them. Because it's just like you were saying, I was doing what I wanted to do and nobody was preventing me from doing it. I just got on and did it. Um, the only time really I was aware of, uh, uh, you know, anything but as I thought it was odd, was when um, the first conference I went to. And there was a bunch of us went out for, for lunch or something, and there were people who I didn't know. And um, this guy introduced himself to me, and I said, oh, hello, my name's Monica Grady. And he said, Monica Grady? M. Grady? I said, yeah. And he said, because, you know, my name had been on the abstract, and he said, I just assumed you were a man. And it's just like, that's assumption, all right? Scientist, you're a man. It's like, oh, you're a doctor, you've got pens in your pocket, you know, white coat, whatever. Um, and, and that brought me up a bit, but that's the only time, really. I love the story of uh, Justin Bell Burnell, uh, who many of you will know discovered Pulsars about when I was asking her once about the press conference that was held yeah. when that won the Nobel Prize, but of course she didn't win the Nobel Prize. And uh, so all of these kind of older scientists were there. Here was this incredible story, you know, a very young woman who did something quite remarkable in terms of our understanding of the things in the universe. And I said, did you get asked anything at all? And she said, no. And they said, oh, hang on a minute. I was asked one question. Uh, the son asked me, are you taller than Princess Margaret? <laughs> so I just like... And I don't know what the Princess Margaret story was about height that had meant the only thing a reporter could think to ask the woman who discovered pulsars was, you know, where she stood in terms of the royal family, you know, height chart. I mean, one of the dreadful things um, when you listen to, to Jocelyn... It, it, when she tells the story of the discovery of pulsars, uh, she was a, a, a student, PhD student, and she she built this amazing sort of telescope of wires and things in the in the field. But she got engaged, and then there was an automatic assumption that she wasn't going to finish her thesis. That it's like, well, you know, so so the other people in the department were discussing her data and conclusions and stuff like that, just on the assumption that because she got engaged, you know, wasn't important to her anymore, which is, you know, things have come on a lot, a lot. Should we move on to monitor? Yeah. We've got four people to get through. Yeah, and we've yeah, only yeah. got through one of them. We can speed up towards the end. <laughs> um, this is... Uh, so, so, Monica, who is the first uh, inspiration for you? 
Right. Well, I don't know whether he was an inspiration or whether he was, you know, perspiration or desperation or one of these things, but I'm sure a lot of you will know the name Colin Pillinger. You know, he was the guy who led Beagle 2. He was the, you know, he sounded like he'd just parked his tractor, you know, with his West Country accent and his, you know, bizarre sideburns and all this sort of thing. He was my PhD supervisor. Um, and, uh, you know, so I work, worked with him for many, many years. And we had, we had a love-hate relationship, all right? He was arrogant and obstinate, and I'm arrogant and obstinate. <laughs> Sometimes. But we always kissed him. Well, we always made up. <laughs> I don't think ever kissed him. Um, and he was another person who, again, he didn't see obstacles. I mean, he just assumed I was coming to work with him to do a PhD he was going to be my PhD supervisor, and that this was work I wanted to do, and I was treated exactly the same as the other people on the team, which was absolutely fantastic. And, uh, well, he had three PhD students. So I was his third one when, um, when I joined him. And we used to go out on, on um, Friday lunchtimes to the pub, all right? Not many, you know, we didn't drink for gallons and gallons and gallons because, you know, Colin would expect us to go back into the lab and to be in the lab on Saturday uh, and on Sunday, you know, that sort of thing. But just being with him and through the years, talking with him and listening with him, and he was a real creative, all right, real creative in terms of, you know, he would you'd be talking to him about an experiment you'd done and, and he'd say, oh, well, have you considered this? And, um, you know, I don't think he was one of the world's giant intellects, you know, like you come across some people. Um, I mean, obviously, Brian, you know, one of your chums. <laughs> 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 but, 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 but Colin, uh, I, I mean, he, he was such, a, such energy and dynamism and, and determination... So anyway, he got a position at the Open University and he moved his team over there and built it all up again. You know, by this stage, we were starting to understand more about Mars and he absolutely, absolutely wanted more than anything really to find out if there was life on Mars. And this is why he, he designed the Beagle 2 mission and, and went through all that. You know, if you read his, um, his uh, autobiography, you, you can see he just barreled through, right? The the politicians, the the boards, and everything like that, which is, you know, tact and diplomacy was not a key strength or a key skill. All right. So he taught me a lot about tact and diplomacy. I.e., you know, it's better to have it because it's you know if you soft soap people, it's often better than you know just shouting at them, but. He was inspirational to me in how he helped me develop interests in different aspects of meteorites and the origin and evolution of the solar system. But in all the science that I do now, its foundation comes from the work that I did with Colin. Um, and so when I was invited to be on this, it was easy, right? 
you know, you know, who made us, right? And it's like, well, it was Colin started to make me, all right? He 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 planted the seed, and then I blossomed. But but you know, but then there are lots of people. But Colin was such a colourful person, you know, such a big character, who pissed me off so much, so many times, all right? And one of my favourite anecdotes about him is, after I'd left the Open University and I, I went to the Natural History Museum, and we'd had an argument over the phone about something really, really trivial. And he was getting me really upset. And I thought, he's on the other end of the phone. I don't, I don't need to take this. And I just put the phone down. And I thought, hmm, great. About five minutes later, um, the secretary, whose office was at the end of the corridor, she came down and said, Monica, there's a fax coming through for you. <laughs> I think you better come and get it. So I, I, I went, and it was Colin's handwriting. He said, don't you ever dare hang up the phone on me again. <laughs> And it's like, I saw him like two days later and he'd like forgotten all about it. You know, it was just, he was like that. It was just, uh, he, he acted in the moment. But yeah, a, a, a huge, great influence, you know, often in the, don't do it that way. <laughs> but, but enormously, enormously formative. And I wouldn't be where I am now if if it hadn't been for Colin. Well, that energy that obviously he had. I mean, it does seem that that's something very, very important to have in a lab, in especially working in something like space science in the UK. Because, I mean, I remember when Beagle 2 kind of, you know, basically failed, and you, you watched the way the newspaper and the media dealt with it as if the whole thing had been rubbish. And you think, here are people who probably couldn't throw a rolled-up ball of paper into a bin, mm -hmm. and they're judging someone who didn't quite get, you know, th and, th and that, that negativity... I think you do need, don't you, very, very robust yeah. people. And, 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 you know, it was, found, it, it was found several years later that actually Beagle 2 had landed safely. It had got rid of the air balloons. It had opened, um, it had opened its solar panels, but the antenna had got stuck, the radio antenna. And it's like, lesson learned. Put your radio ant antenna on the outside. So that's what space missions do now. You know, so... It, it's like it's so sad that it was so close to being a to being a real success, uh, and Colin got multiple sclerosis. All right, he was a, he was vigorous, and uh, he, you know he'd get up on the roof and replace the roof tiles and all that sort of thing, and then to be late on in life to get multiple sclerosis, which is not a um, a condition which. Um, you know, 50, mid-50s men, uh, you know, they're not the usual sort of person who gets multiple sclerosis. And it, it, again, it drove him. Uh, and eventually he was on, he was on a, you know, electric um, sort of wheelchair-y type thing. But, but he never lost the, um, I'm just going to say the loyalty. I'm here being incredibly disloyal to him, but but you know his team, you know, supported him. He never made it through to the end of the Rosetta mission, which was which was real criminal because he was one of the people who'd instigated right from the start the mission that went to a comet. The team at the Open University is building three instruments to go on three different lunar missions to bring a, to bring lunar material back 
to the earth, which is, you know, coming full circle from, from what Colin started off doing. And so it's one of the really saddest, most, you know, things that I, I regret that he was, he had a, a, a brain hemorrhage um, and about five years ago now. Uh, and it was sad that he was cut short so, so quickly, but good that he didn't degenerate mentally you know he was still at that top of his game in terms of of his mental faculties and stuff in but fact, the great thing about that isn't it is that the, the legacy right is that as a human you can make a contribution you Colin's, can do what you can do you can make your contribution Colin's legacy is enormous okay uh in terms of the people he left behind all right so you know if you look at the distribution of planetary scientists across, I didn't say across the world, because some are in Australia, some are in Japan. And you start saying, actually, he was Colin's postdoc. She was one of his PhD students. You know, he was a PhD student of somebody who was Colin's postdoc. You know, so his legacy was the people that he left behind. Right, so, I mean, it's a wonderful thing. And it's wonderful to hear you describe it as this kind of, you know, this... Um, it's like a stream that branches and branches and branches and, and they can keep, you know, you carry that on. Um, so let's move on to Amy, your second. Uh, who's your, having heard of the great inspiration, who you're going to up, you're going to up the game. Well, this one is more industry specific this time. Um, I thought I would go with someone more in, in the broadcasting world. Um, another strong female role model, and it's um, Nan Winton. So she was the first uh, woman to read the news on BBC. Um, it was in 1960. And the weirdest thing is, it was actually only in response because ITV had um, used Barbara Mandel right from its, its, its get-go. So it was really the BBC's panic game to go, oh, they've done something, we need to do something as well. And the saddest part of the story is, despite her being such a pioneer in the industry, and it's crazy to think, like, it's 1960. It's, it's not that... I mean, it is long ago. It really depends on who you're <laughs> looking at. depends on the perspective. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's just, for me, really difficult to understand that in 1960, it was still a hard thing for Britain to get its head around. A woman reading the news, that was enough to be offensive. And then, so as I was saying, it's a sad story because she actually only lasted nine months. Nine months, and then the BBC exec at the time fired her, not really giving her much explanation. Uh, but it was very much because of misogynistic Britain. That, that was why she got fired. People thought it was inappropriate that a woman was reading the late news. Um, and the next female presenter to read the, the news was Angela Rippon. And I think it wasn't until 1975. Mm. So it took another 15 years for people to get their head around that it was not, not the, the worst thing. The world wasn't going to come to yeah. an end if a woman read the news. Because there was a female voice daring well, to read the news. Sort of, I, I, I mean, I, I'd heard things like, um, oh, well, a woman couldn't read the news because they're too emotional. You know, they, yeah. you know, if they were reporting on some terrible, terrible international disaster, they'd just cry. They wouldn't be able to do well, it. Apparently, the BBC execs or the, or the chairman and the boardman, and they were all panicking, going, is she going to faint? <laughs> and, oh, I might. Oh, I might. Did might, you six, bring your smelling salts? Six. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I love this quote from Nan Winter. Nan goes, "I mean, 
it's not that difficult. Somebody <laughs> else writes the story. I've just got to read it off the screen. Really? And do you know what she did um, afterwards, uh, after she'd done that? She actually, and, and this is the other part, I guess, is, is actually why she is also a role model to me, is admitting that, you know, humiliation, really, and years later saying, you know, it, it did knock my confidence. It was a hard thing, but it also didn't stop her. She just went straight to ITV <laughs> and continued to read the news. And I think she was, oh, I mean, she, she essentially, she went on. Um, and that is why, not only because she was a pioneer, but because she, she picked herself back up from what would have felt like a massive career knock. You got dropped from the BBC. Um, but she went on. And if it wasn't for, for Nan Winton, for Barbara Mandel, then it wouldn't, perhaps have been as likely to see as many women now that we see in, in, in sports broadcasting. But even still, you, you know, it's, you do see a lot more female newsreaders. You do see female presenters. You do see, do see female reporters reporting on sport. But we've still got such an issue with female commentators. And I was working on a, a series, essentially, that was trying to promote females in motorsport and so to to kind of fit in with with the the PR line they hired a a female to be um the commentator and they fired her after the first year but there's no female commentators commentators in, in motorsport so she had no previous experience she took it upon herself to go and try and 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 learn as much as she could but obviously she's learning from men and it's it was just another one of those things. It just it really reminded me of the Nan Winton story. She was given one season, mm. and then that was it. It mm. that was her done. But isn't it interesting that there's, there's, you kind of read there's two ways that you know, Hume, we are very social creatures. We're looking around for what the world expects us to do, and you can either look at all of that and go, "Oh, the world doesn't expect me to do this. I shouldn't do it," or you can look for the exceptions, yeah. the people who give permission because actually they did do it. And if you look at that that's your kind of you can little tune your um brain to that's the that's the that's what society could expect me to do and it, and it gives you permission and then other people can take that permission and run with it and i think quite often like we say so the bbc labeled nan winton an experiment it's pretty rude isn't it it's very rude <laughs> but it's breaking that wall isn't it as soon as the wall's been broken i fully expect to see way more female commentators in another 10 years time I just think the the first domino has to fall maybe there's going to be a bit of a gap for the rest fall mm. but I do think things are and will turn around it's interesting the Nan Winton thing which is anyone who's watched W1A will know that in the BBC all the rooms really were named after different people and, and we always Monkey Cage we have done most of our prepping of that show in the Nan Winton room which is kind of that typical thing isn't it which is Nan Winton had a nine month career is chucked out and now she becomes part of the history and this wonderful but I, I'm interested to, uh, to talking of women in sport which is it feels to me very often both politically and also in the mass media they're actually much further behind real genuine public taste uh, and indeed what because I mean my dad you know when he was 90 he was over the moon when they started to show women's cricket 
He, he could have been watching that for 20 years. He loved watching it. He was like, there was no, you know, here was an old guy, wasn't it? Why are women playing cricket? It was like, brilliant, more interesting cricket. And then you do obviously get the things like, I forget the name now, there was a, an Indian cricketer and she did the most amazing catch uh, where she managed to leap back over the boundary, <laughs> chuck the ball, so she got the ball, pushed it back into the f on, onto the field and then leapt forward and caught it, right? <laughs> And then I looked at Twitter and a load of men just went, well, of course she can do that. She's practised. <laughs> and you kind of go like, I think a lot of the sports people do. It's one of the things they do, you know. But it was, but I, and, and I think the same with women's football. So not just, the, you know, the whole thing, as far as I can see, actually most people would quite happily have more sport with a greater sense of the variety of what that sport is. Mm. I mean... It's always like the people that are making the decisions are trying to predict what the audience reaction will be. And, and that was the case with Nan. They thought that the audience reaction was, was going to be terrible and people wouldn't get their heads around it. Um, I worked on um, a series called W Series. And the, the, the sad thing was that it, it, it's at the moment in running in financial difficulties. But what I found so bizarre was that people were still shocked that the racing action was good just because it was females driving the cars. But I mean, it's still the same sport. It's still people trying to go faster than the other person. It's not going to make the sport any worse to watch. But mm. I mean, I, I, a long time ago, uh, when my son was young, younger, he used to like watching... Um, Oh, I don't know, cars. <laughs> Forests, you know, I can't remember what it's called. Oh, yeah, Rally. forest car racing. Yeah. Yeah. Rallying, yeah. rallying, that's the one, rallying. But there was a woman rally driver who, I, I can't remember her name either. This is really dreadful, isn't it? But there, were, there was always, you know, the, 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 there were all the men, and I think there was just the one woman rally driver. And she seemed to be doing okay you know that I don't remember there being any sort of oh right well she's the woman one you know she seemed to be up along there and it was as far as I could see it was it was totally equal you know she wasn't given you know a two mile start or anything like that but that's the great thing about motorsport is that there there doesn't have to be any like gender division yeah because it, it should be an, an equal playing field the difficulty comes is because of the experience yeah that women aren't naturally put into cars but or... we've got women jockeys now yes if, um you know whether we like horse racing or you know steeplechasing and stuff like that but but there are women jockeys and they race along with the male jockeys and it's all well it's the horse doing all the work isn't it right. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, we've, we've we've got uh, about 32 seconds left so who's <laughs> Who's your second inspiration then? Well, my second in inspiration comes very much from the same world as Amy's, and that's the broadcasting world. And it's Judith Hahn, who was a female presenter on Tomorrow's World. Now, you, you mentioned that, that we just don't have the science documentaries anymore. And this, this, this was technology, Tomorrow's World. It was just fantastic, you know. And one of my, you know, life-changing um, things was seeing Judith Hahn demonstrate cling film, you know, and putting it over a bowl and turning it upside down and the salad didn't fall out, you know, that's what they... But this was one of the, you know, the few science technology programmes that, that, that was on TV when I was was growing up in the 70s and 
well, there was Maggie Philbin as well, but Judith Harm was the one who, you know, she seemed she seemed so authoritative. She she knew the subject. She could explain things really, really well. And to me, that was like, wow, you know, she's doing this job. I don't particularly want, you know, I didn't know what the job of a science commentator was then. You know, I didn't. I knew at that time I wanted to be a scientist, and it was like, well, if I could be a scientist like like Judith Hahn is, and uh, and it's just like, yeah. So that's that's one of my my real memories of, of of her being on Tomorrow's World. They should bring that back. They should bring back that bit which mixes both what we thought because it's always made up that everything on it was actually a bit bonkers and if you do look back you go, no a lot of it really was yeah. it's showing you I mean there's one even from 1991 or 92 that I used to show which is yeah. one which goes there's something new it's called the information superhighway uh, yeah. and it's yeah. so it's amazing clip, when it? you go yeah, but yeah. It, it's an incredible thing to go but that that was all, all right yeah. but it was just like wow these things move fast. They were demonstrating at one stage uh, you know the office of the future yeah it, it would have no paper in it oh yeah but yeah you know and it was talking about you know and you will have a telephone and you will be able to you know send messages and all this sort of thing and it's way way ahead of its time but isn't it interesting that i mean just thinking about going back briefly to colin pillinger that in that exact what happened with tomorrow's world is exactly the way science works people are like oh there's all these things there's all these ideas let's talk about all the ideas and then when you look back with 30 years of hindsight some of them hit the wrong time some of them just happened not to work some of them were never going to work and, and I think, you know, Beagle 2 failing is kind of like that. It was one of a load of equal things that could have been the next great success. Mm -hmm. And lots of those things were made by people who were equally as good as each other. Mm -hmm. But we only remember the ones that, you know, where the dice, dice fell that way. And I think the thing about Tomorrow's World is it's not that they were stupid. It's that nobody knew. Know what, like, the future has lots of possible paths. Mm -hmm. And here they all are. And... Um, don't know. We'll yeah. see what happens. Yeah. You know. I mean, I another one I remember is when they were demonstrating barcodes. You know, <laughs> and it's just like what what these black and white line things, uh, and it's like, well, how can that tell you what what the price is of something? You know, and and it's just like, and they were showing you, and I, I think one of the first places to use barcodes was a supermarket in Preston or somewhere. Uh, you know, so somewhere which was quite you know, a medium-sized town where there would be enough footfall through a supermarket to get people to demonstrate it, but it was small enough that it wasn't going to cause chaos. It wasn't like, you know, rolling it out in Tesco's all over the country. And it was interviewing some of the people there about what did you think when you, you know, you picked up the, the, the food and it didn't have a price on it. It just had this sticker with, oh, we didn't know, you know, and all this sort of thing. And, and, and interviewing the, the cashiers of, of, you know, well, what did you think when you just had to, you know, they had the, the, the scanner, which is probably about, you know, the size of a box to sort of put it against this. So, oh, we weren't sure it was going to work, you know. But it was like demonstrating that sort of thing, you know, 20 years before the rest of us, the, the rest of the country, Seen a, what, I hope there was a celebrity that did it. You know, in the same way, famously, uh, the uh, star of On the Buses, Reg Varney, was the first person to use a cash machine. Uh, and I hope it was like Jim Bowens brought a bag of granulated sugar. And we're going to try out the barcode. <laughs> I, I don't recall that, actually. Well, we'll check on that. There, yeah, yeah. I'm sure there's a good history there. Uh, so um, thank you very much. I hope that people have realised as well that uh, how many people here know of Eli Woods? I knew it would be a long shot. Yeah. Are they, uh, no, but Eli, Eli Wood 
who was uh, an old musical actor, amongst other things. Good, that's okay. No one's going to make that mistake. <laughs> I am the only... No, you're thinking of Elijah Wood. <laughs> we might have to drop this whole thing. It turns out there's too many... Uh, um, so, thank you very much to uh, everyone for, for listening. Thank you for every, everyone who's been uh, here in the Royal Institution. Uh, and thank you very much to our excellent guests. And thank you very much to our co-host, uh, uh, Helen Chersky, as well. And, uh, and thank you very much to Robin Ince. And can we... How can people support this? Oh, the, on Patreon, <laughs> cosmicshambles.com. No, I think it's no, patreon.com patreon. slash cosmicshambles, isn't it? Or slash shambles, slash cosmicshambles, patreon.com. We're going to try and make Google sure all it. of these... Uh, <laughs> look, the Ask whole point GPT. is there's a science element to it. If you can't work it out from the clues we've given you, you might be the wrong listenership. Um, but if you, you see most podcasts spend the first 15 minutes just promoting themselves and remembering to say all the different things to sell it. We've remembered right at the end and forgotten how to do it. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, but if you can support it, because we want to make sure that as much of what we make as possible is freely available to everyone. So if you are, if you can't afford to uh, pay anything, that's absolutely fine. We want to make sure that you can still listen to it and you can share it with people. If you have got a little bit of spare cash, uh, then you are helping all those other people listen to it as well. So thank you very much. Amy Reynolds, Monica Grady, Helen Chersky and me. Bye. Dave Made Us was produced by Trent Burton and presented by Dr. Helen Chersky and me, Robin Ince. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network and is presented in association with the Royal Institution. If you'd like to watch the video version of this podcast, you can. Visit youtube.com slash cosmic shambles. And to enjoy more great science podcasts, documentaries and live events, visit cosmicshambles.com.